This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. So it appears that the former president has traded in the Trump train for an airplane. That's right, folks. Trump Force One landed in East Palestine Wednesday and did absolutely nothing for the traumatized residents still reeling in the aftermath of a toxic train derailment, except to bring bottles of Trump water. Especially thank some of the incredible people that uh, helped us because we're bringing thousands of bottles of water, Trump water, actually, most of it. Uh, some of it we had to go to a much lesser quality water. You want to get those Trump bottles, I think, more than anybody else. In an incoherent, babbling, stupid speech, Donald missed the part where his administration is responsible for repealing Obama-era safety rules that probably caused the crash. But what he did do is he got to kibitz with J.D. Vance and the town's mayor. He bought some burgers at a local joint. He signed a few stupid red MAGA hats and grandstanded like the fucking shameless carnival barker that he is. And while Trump is good for absolutely nothing, both Ohio and Pennsylvania are filing lawsuits against Norfolk Southern Railway and the EPA is taking charge of the East Palestine cleanup. We are going to get through this as a team. And at the same time, we are absolutely going to hold Norfolk Southern accountable. And I can promise you that. That's the director of the EPA, who, along with Senators Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, went to East Palestine today to hear from the community on the impact of the Norfolk Southern train derailment. This week marks the one-year anniversary of Putin's war on Ukraine. And dueling speeches mark the difference in perspective between President Biden and Vladimir Putin. Putin's speech was a series of lies and propaganda which reveals just how terrified that he must be for his future. He capsized Russia's economy. Anyone with means has left. And he has lost somewhere between 80 to 100,000 troops on the battlefield. I mean, it's like a Greek tragedy, but it's happening in real time. All units, Irene. I say again, Irene. By now, the whole world knows that after months of secret planning, President Biden showed up unannounced in Ukraine and actually walked the streets of an active war zone alongside President Zelensky. In doing so, he confirmed our, meaning United States' unwavering support for the Ukrainians and consolidated the strength of the NATO alliance behind Zelensky. The symbolism was lost on no one. But in statements, Biden made it clear, and I quote, Putin thought Ukraine was weak and the West was divided. He thought he could outlast us. I don't think he's thinking that right now. This footage of Zelensky wiping away tears as Biden addressed war-weary officials in Kiev. Nearly one year ago, I spoke at the Royal Castle here in Warsaw. Just weeks after Vladimir Putin had unleashed his murderous assault on Ukraine, the largest land war in Europe since World War II had begun. And the principles that have been the cornerstone of peace, prosperity, and stability on this planet for more than 75 years were at risk of being shattered. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. 
Well, I just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. And this headline from the New York Times hit me, quote, Vladimir Zelensky came into office thinking peace with Putin was possible. He now believes victory is the only answer. That seems to be the consensus worldwide, especially now as China bolsters its support of the Kremlin with a visit from a top diplomat to discuss, and I quote, world peace. We are also waiting for Xi to unveil uh, a peace proposal that China has been working on for the last couple of months. Uh, that, that will be key, the details of what China is proposing uh, the two sides do to try and reach a ceasefire. Uh, whether or not uh, Europe or the U.S. would uh, would would be able would pay attention to that proposal or would sign on to it is a big question, given uh, the suspicions about Chinese support for Russia. Beijing insists it is neutral in the conflict, but those claims routinely clash with its rhetorical and diplomatic support for Russia. Now, time will tell where China stands and if they have the stomach to supply Russia with arms. I mean, to do so would be diplomatic and economic suicide for China. Xi Jinping claims that China would like to broker an end to the war. But truth is, Xi wants to reshape the global order so that the United States and its allies cannot slow China's rise or challenge its territorial claims. It's long been thought that if Putin takes Ukraine, Xi would immediately move to take Taiwan. And to that end, China remains closely aligned with Russia. So apparently, autocrats need friends too. President Trump is touting his relationship with Kim Jong-un after exchanging letters with the North Korean leader. Brian Todd has been looking into this for us. So Brian, are they more than simply pen pals? They could be more than pen pals. But here at home, we have our own version of Russian apologists who, for whatever reason, choose to support the Russian Federation over the Ukrainian democracy. I mean, stupid tweets from the likes of Boebert and Marsha Blackburn screamed, where's our president on President's Day? I guess they think he should be handing out bottled water in East Palestine and not out saving the world. But the MAGA wing of the Republican Party calling for an end to aid in Ukraine undermines U.S. security interests and reflects their affinity for Putin's authoritarian worldview. Because that's exactly what they want. They want an autocracy where they get to be the oligarchs at the top of the pyramid, hoarding cash and property, and also stealing from the people that they pretend to represent. I think it was Steve Bannon who said that Putin is the leader of the anti-woke fight globally. So no wonder Ron DeSantis loves him. DeSantis couldn't stop criticizing Obama for not doing more to help Ukraine in 2014, claiming more than once that Putin was a threat to all the Baltic nations. And then, suddenly as the war started, DeSantis flips and he starts to sound like one of Putin's propaganda parrots. Seriously, what could have changed this guy's mind? On Fox and Friends Monday, DeSantis tried his hand at foreign policy. I think a lot of Americans are, are asking, you know, how much more money, how much more time, how much more human suffering? Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. 
And um, these things can can escalate. And I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to to achieve. Uh, but just saying it's an open ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. I mean, good job, Ron. You can't get more anti-woke than that, you fucking dope. This week, it seems like the lights have come on and the cockroaches are scattering. On top of all the revelations going on in the Fulton County election fraud case, which we'll, I mean, we'll get to that in a moment. Do you remember during the midterms in Arizona, there was a posse of election deniers camped out near drop boxes, toting guns and trolling voters as they cast their ballots? I mean, do you remember that? They were there because they were told by the former Arizona Attorney General that the 2020 election had been stolen. Well, newly released documents show how Republican Mark Brnovich publicized a bogus account of Maricopa County's voting record claiming criminality or fraud that his own staff verified was not true. Former Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich has a lot of explaining to do after the release of new documents that show his investigation into the 2020 election found no evidence of widespread fraud or malfeasance. When you are in possession of information that would have been critical to pouring water on the flames of conspiracy, that water should have been poured. Timothy Heafy, the lead investigator for the January 6th committee, said in an interview this week that he and the 13 other federal prosecutors who worked on the case decided jointly that the entire case will boil down to proving Trump's intent. Once they began digging into the evidence, they realized that the former president had directed a multi-part plan to prevent the transfer of power. Now, we already knew that, but it's promising to hear it confirmed by a group of bipartisan prosecutors who recommend criminally indicting Trump to Merrick Garland. All of these revelations being released this week are just part of the drip, drip, drip leading up to Trump's inevitable indictment. Any criminal conduct found in the Georgia investigation or in Jack Smith's January 6th investigation weighs heavily on the future of democracy in America. We have, for the last two years, been at a tragic political crossroads in this country. Now that one of the two major political parties no longer believes in democracy as a basic organizing principle of that political party. So moving on to Fulton County, where an unexpected witness came forward on Tuesday to discuss her experience as the foreperson of the grand jury hearing the Trump 2020 election fraud case. Well, her name is Emily Kors. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. And I'm, I'm hesitant to speak to something that the judge made a decision not to share. He, uh, I don't know if everyone's aware of this, but there was a hearing um, about what parts of the report should and should not be published in its various forms. And the list, well, the sections that were removed were consciously chosen to be removed. And I don't want to say I have better judgment than the judge. And following rules we can assume were laid out by prosecutor Fannie Willis, Emily nevertheless spoke with the press saying, we won't be shocked by the indictments. 
She also told CNN that the panel is recommending multiple indictments and suggested the big name may be on the list. Now, she later declined to disclose exactly how many indictments the special grand jury recommended, saying only that she believes it is more than 12. Is it yes. more than 12 people? Is it more than 20 people? I think if you look at the page numbers of the report, there's about six pages in the middle that got cut out. Allow for spacing. It's not a short list. Other takeaways, I guess Mark Meadows did have much to say, but he did take the fifth a number of times. Michael Flynn was nice even though he invoked privilege and declined to answer some questions. Now, Rudy and Lindsey Graham were friendly and forthcoming, and she only wishes that she could have met Trump because, well, why not? My coolest moment was shaking Rudy Giuliani's hand. That was really cool for me. I, I made a point of of stopping them and being like, wait, before we, before we go back to this, can I shake your hand? Because this is an honor to meet the guy. is really neat for me. The interesting thing about Miss Core is that she is probably exactly like the jurors who will eventually hear this case. She's never voted, but says that this experience of being on a jury and getting to shake hands with celebrity politicians was very exciting for her. On the subject of a potential Trump indictment, Coors was asked today, this time by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, about Trump's claim that the grand jury's report totally exonerated him. In response, Coors rolled her eyes and burst out laughing. Did he really say that, she asked? Oh, that's fantastic. That's phenomenal. I love it. Despite Trump's claims that the prosecutors are liberal zealots on a witch hunt, Coors said that she thinks Willis and her team acted in a nonpartisan fashion and tried to keep the proceedings fair. The grand jury made up of four members spent seven months hearing the case and heard the testimony of over 75 witnesses. Now, Coors was honest about her feelings. She said there are too many examples of famous people avoiding accountability after high-profile investigations. And I quote, The only thing I would be disappointed in at this point is if this whole thing just disappears. That's the only thing that would make me sad. So let's make Emily happy and get to those indictments as soon as humanly possible. But, you know, we should really wrap our minds around the reality of this, because right now, Donald Trump is likely to be the Republican nominee. And pretty much every poll I've seen shows him beating Joe Biden. So we have to start thinking, what does it mean to have someone uh, who has attempted to overthrow the government before in power? And if he's not held responsible? You know, when I read that op-ed, which I thought was uh, excellent, I, by far, I, the greatest danger is not prosecuting Trump. If, if you allow all of this obvious election tampering to go unpunished, what sort of precedent have you set? So now a couple of quick notes. First of all, congratulations to Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz. She won Tuesday's primary for Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice. And she has said that she backs abortion rights and has condemned the Republicans' absurd election maps as rigged. I wanted to bring change and common sense back to our Supreme Court. Our Supreme Court is very, very partisan, and it shouldn't be that way. 
Justices should be making their decisions based on the Constitution and based on the law. There shouldn't be a thumb on the scale one way or another when a person comes into the Supreme Court. And who convince Wisconsinites to trust you when it comes to that? Well, I have a long history of working with the public and serving the public. That's all I've done my entire life. She will face Republican election denier Dan Kelly, and if all goes well, she'll join the court after the spring election. The race is considered a rare opportunity to crack the Wisconsin GOP's ironclad and largely election-proof control of the state's government. So go Janet! And guess who's headed back to court? Yeah, that's right, Steve fucking Bannon. This time on a civil case. Now according to the Daily Beast, Bannon is being sued by one of his own former lawyers for allegedly owing a whopping $480,487 in unpaid legal fees. Now add this to Bannon's long list of criminality that includes money laundering, federal fraud, and contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. Justice is also coming for a former presidential advisor and... and hobo himmler, Steve Bannon. <laughs> And now for the main event. We welcome back to the show our old friend Malcolm Nance. Nance has just returned from the front line in Ukraine and has a lot to say about the current situation there and here at home. You may know Nance is the globally renowned expert on terrorism, on extremism, and insurgency. Nance's stunning new book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Militia's Terrorist and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency, was a New York Times bestseller, as was his book, The Plot to Hack America. He's the counterterrorism analyst for MSNBC and NBC, and Nance is considered one of the great African Americans in espionage by the International Spy Museum. So buckle up, my friends, and let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Malcolm, everyone has weighed in. When I say everyone, I mean everyone <laughs> has weighed in on Joe Biden's February 20th visit to Ukraine. But you're closer to Putin's war than most. So from your perspective... How important was Biden's visit? And do you think that we might be at a turning point in this war? Well, I have to tell you, I think that we reached the turning point well before Biden's visit. But what he did was he capped it off by publicly humiliating Vladimir Putin. And if and that's the only way this visit should be seen as. Although you can say, hey, we're showing an ally that we're with them. An American president has gone for the first time into a war zone in which U.S. troops are not involved and U.S. troops are not involved in the war in Ukraine. They may be doing training outside of Ukraine, but they're not in action in Ukraine as part of a U.S. force. So for this to do, for the president to do that, he was showing them solidarity. But is that really how this is going to be perceived uh, by Vladimir Putin? And the only way he's going to see it is at a terrible, terrible personal humiliation. 
Now, you might think, wow, that's really sort of over the top. Why would you say it's a personal humiliation? I actually just wrote a uh, article about this in my malcolmnance.substack.com called How Biden Humiliated Putin. And the best part is I start out with this fanciful dream of Vladimir Putin thinking that he's going to give the victory parade on the first anniversary in downtown Kiev. And then he wakes up and realizes he's watching Joe Biden give that speech in downtown Kiev, walking around all the tourist attractions of St. Michael's Monastery, which I've been to dozens of times, mm-hmm. uh, Maybach Square. And it's it's his worst enemy. The guy who everyone called an octogenarian, a senile, demented old man, has co- has created a coalition which denied Vladimir Putin the opportunity to not just walk through Kiev, but to not even get close to Kiev and to the point where he is losing his army. No one in Russia or the rest of the world is going to miss this uh, as what it is, which is Putin is humiliated. Well, I don't know about that one. So mm. on on that day of February 20th, as an example, like I said, everybody had something to say about it. So in the Atlantic, there's a guy by the name of Elliot Cohen, no relation yeah. to me. His, his um, article entitled, Biden just destroyed Putin's last hope. And that the president's visit to Ukraine was a gut punch to the Russian leader. Now, mm. In this, which is very similar to your substack, in it, he turns around and he said, President Joe Biden's visit to Kiev matters just as much as any of as any of these. And he talks about um, the intelligence that's provided, the military uh, equipment that's being sent and, you know, other heads of government preceded him earning deserved credit. But it's an altogether different thing when the president of the United States, who is indeed the leader of the free world, shows up. His words mattered, he pledged, our unwavering and unflagging commitments to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. And even more important, that the United States will stand with Ukraine as long as it takes. Those are Joe Biden's words. So I'm with you when... You turn around and you say that this octogenarian, the one alleged dementia, you know, uh, patient, you know, unfortunately, he does walk very stiff. I'm sure. By the way, I wake up first thing in the morning unless I take like a diclofenac. I could barely walk. Right. (laughs) However, there is one asshole that sees it very, very differently here, at least, you know, in the United States. And that's well, that's dear old Donald. Right. I mean, the Donald, the douchebag. So in Rolling Stone magazine, the same exact day, because as I said, every asshole's got something to say. Uh, Aswin uh, Subsang puts in, uh, writes an article. Trump defends Putin as Biden visits war torn Ukraine. The former president said his personal relationship with the Russian autocrat would have prevented the invasion. And he goes on and on. And I can't tell you on his untruth social platform how many stupid things came out of this one person's mouth, right? I mean, it's, it's comical, really, as what it is. But 
on that Monday night, Trump touted his great relationship with Russian autocrat Vladimir Putin and defended his past assertion that he trusted the foreign leader over his own intelligence community. Now, that's fucking twice, Malcolm, that this idiot, if not more than twice, that this idiot and a half, three times, okay, right, that this idiot and a half has decided that he's going to side with autocrats, that he's going to disrespect our law enforcement. And I got to be honest with you, you know, I have a real squinted eye when I talk about DOJ, when I talk about the FBI. But I have to say, when it comes to our intelligence community, all right, we are the best at it, I believe, in the world. And the fact that as a president, as a former president, and now, right, as just a humiliated, twice impeached former president, the guy is saying the same thing again, which is that I believe Vladimir Putin over our own intelligence. And yet this idiot wants to once again tout that he's going to run in, right, in 2024. Mm. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that he even has a single vote other than himself. I don't get it. You know, I'm, I'm not shocked. I mean, some of the things that I see on Twitter and uh, other people who are supporters of Trump, uh, there was a um, there was a good video uh, capture that somebody did at one of his rallies where they asked if you could vote for Joe Biden, if you had to vote for Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin, who would you vote for? And the Trump guy with the Trump hat said, I'll vote for Vladimir Putin. And he asked him why. He says, well, unlike Biden, he's a strong leader and he loves his country. He's a KGB officer. The KGB from the Cold War. Mass murderers. And now he is proving himself to be a mass murderer. And these people don't see the blood of children, the rivers of blood of dead families in Ukraine. In the town, city of Mariupol alone, they suspect there may be as many as 30,000 dead civilians. They kidnapped over 100,000 uh, Ukrainian children uh, and sent them out throughout Russia. They don't see any of that as a negative. They see that as a positive. They see that as a strength, right? But then again, they constantly claim that Joe Biden is this you know evil guy who is plotting the end of America, but working with dictators, murderers, uh, you know, child rapists and people who randomly bombard the villages of Ukrainians, of which many Americans are descended from. Yeah, they don't have a problem with that. They don't have a problem with it because, as you know, and you're an escapee, they are a cult. And this cult is a tribe, a tribe in which Donald Trump is their white supremacist leader. They don't care about anything else. They want an America which is for them only. And if they have to, as one woman said this at a Trump rally, famously said this, I never thought I'd want a dictator, but if I have to have one, it should be Donald Trump. And Donald Trump responds to that, and he loves it. He loves it. He has no problem, no problem embracing white supremacy. No American from World War II on should ever 
be wanting to embrace the, the, the ideology of the people that mass murdered six million Jews and caused 50 million people to die on the basis of giving it a soft name like America First, which was the group that supported the Nazis in America and had a march in Madison Square Garden in 1939. But Donald Trump has made it palatable to the Republican Party. And they are going to march their way into oblivion with this. Yeah, well, look, the former idiot spoke to this crowd over at, this is great, he threw this rally at the Hilton Palm Beach Airport Hotel. I mean, talk about a class act, right? There was this (laughs) tiny little eight by, it was at the, (laughs) you can't make this shit up. So he throws a event a fans only, right? It almost sounds like that naked thing of fans, fans uh, whatever it's right? called. Only Donald fans, Trump right? Only fans. That's a disgusting An only fans, right, event at the Hilton Palm Beach Airport Hotel. All right? This is, this is what he did. And in it, he states, right, because he was asked a question. Remember, this is, this is part of his speech to this group of, like, How many people do you think you can get into that little area? The entire stage was like 10 by 10. It was the size of my, literally, it was like the size of the square footage of my solitary confinement cell. So he's standing on this stage with the ugly carpet. It might have been the only carpet uglier than you would find at a Trump hotel or a Trump (laughs) property. And he says, and this is, I quote, remember when the media hit me with a question, who do you trust? Your intelligence people, Comey, McCabe, Strzok, Lisa Page, how about Lisa or Putin? And I said, you know, that could be the toughest question I've ever been asked as a politician. And then when I really didn't give them a very good answer in terms of exactness, I mean, like the guy ever gives any, right? Oh, all hell broke loose. But that's okay, you know, that's okay. And it turned out I was right. I was right about that, too. My question is, the fuck is he right about? What did he say? Right. All that he said was that he suggested he believed Putin over. He says, and here's the quote. I have great confidence in my intelligence people. But I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. I mean, just look at the words that this fifth grader, or I shouldn't even say, I don't want to denigrate fifth graders, that this nursery school (laughs) idiot is saying that the guy displayed strong and powerful denial by what? By saying no? I mean, this is the problem when you have, he's not just, it's not just that he's stupid, right? It's he's dangerous and he's devious. And that's yes. the problem because you've been there in Ukraine. You've sure. seen that you've seen what's going on over there. You yeah. know, how do we combat with somebody who's so willing to make these anti-American statements and get away with it? You know, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene just said something along the same lines. But of course, I would expect that out of her. She's a moron. Um, you know, in fact. It is, uh, you know, uh, what is the old uh, saying? I think it was, I want to say it was by Baudelaire, but I may be wrong, right? Uh, someone who can make you believe in absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Uh, Donald Trump is stupid. 
on 100, 100%, stupidest person to ever hold the seat of president of the United States, challenging Willard Fillmore for the bottom of the presidencies, right? For slot number 44 of 44 worst presidents. But this is the kind of person who understands the power of stupid. He really does. Yes. Uh, back in, you might remember, you were with him back then, back in his days, and he was doing WWE wrestling stuff, right? Going down there and, you know, uh, coming out on the state, you know, coming out and presenting himself as the rich billionaire, blah, 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 you know, siding with the bad guys, you know, and the good guys win. And he would say, I was wrong and all that stuff. Look, he understands the power of ignorance. When he made his statement that I love the poorly educated, that, in fact, may have been the most mm -hmm. honest thing Donald Trump has ever said in his career. He loves them because these are the rubes he can manipulate. These are the people whose money he will take. If you give them the image or the fantasy of what they think, as, as the old saying goes, a stupid man's idea of a smart man and a poor man's idea of a rich man, right? Richie Rich, you know, the poor little rich kid grown up, then they will support you on the fantasy that they too can be like you. Trump University was just that whole scam designed to take your money so you could be like Donald. Um, you know, he understands the power of those people. But there's some other point where, where he's going to understand that those people have force, weight, and mass behind them. And that day was on January 6th. 2020, um, when he launched them to overthrow the government of the United States. I have no doubt in my heart, all right, I wrote a whole book about that. this whole operation. I have no doubt that he intended that afternoon to get into the Secret Service vehicles, roll into the Capitol, which may be on fire, which may have had all the congressmen and women subdued, raped, beaten, subjugated, the count stopped. And he was going to walk into the well of the house and declare himself the winner like Mussolini. I have no doubt that that was his intention. And he would have said, it's popular. Look at the people around me. This was done with people power. There's 40,000 people here. And he would have ended American governance on the spot. And I think he fully intends to do it again. So we can laugh at him as the buffoon. There's a famous... Old movie, all right, old movie assignment. Humphrey Bogart in a World War II movie called Sahara, where he plays an army sergeant in an expeditionary force in North Africa. They capture an Italian and a German, and the Italian is arguing with the German prisoner that Mussolini, he, you know, is not like Hitler. And he says, look, you can dress like a buffoon, you can talk like a buffoon, you can act like a buffoon, but to kill like Hitler, you need to be an artist. Well... Donald Trump has got the buffoon part down to a science. Yeah, the question he does. Is, will he transition, right, from understanding that that power is lethal? And when he does, all right, he will, without any question, take his tribe of 28% of the electorate, 30% of the electorate, and he will put an end to American democracy. Yeah, if he can, he most certainly will. So speaking about somebody who will put an end, you know, and has put an end to democracy in his country, Vladimir Putin. Uh, On yeah. that day, right, and you were 100% correct because he expected that he would be giving this speech from <laughs> Kiev and so on. Putin then says in his speech, which of course was in Moscow, 
mm. on the one-year anniversary of the war that he and Russia, this sounds just like Donald, or Donald stole it from him, are the real victims, and mm. that somehow they are the liberators of Ukraine. Now, Putin <laughs> pulled out of our last remaining arms deal, and then he made all of these vague nuclear threats, right? So what's the likelihood that he'll actually act on his threat and cross the line into a nuclear war? Oh, that's such a good question. I gave that a lot of thought when we were over there. Let me tell you a little bit of something about where we were, where our mindset was when I was with the International Legion. Starting in August, when we were starting to do our big offensive pushes uh, and do our reconnaissance that would allow us to break through in September, we started carrying our M70, you know, our uh, new gas mask, right? Our Avon gas mask, brand new, out of the box, two canisters. And then they gave us rubber ponchos, these Soviet style rubber ponchos that you could throw over yourself in case chemical weapons or biological or nuclear weapons were used. We thought by September, when we did the breakthrough in Kharkiv, we thought it would be chemical weapons. We pushed hard. We pushed fast. There were units uh, the, that pushed all the way to the Russian border. We liberated hundreds of villages, six cities. And we thought if they're going to do it, they're going to do it somewhere around here as we threatened the Luhansk area. We were on the northern side of Luhansk. But here's the interesting thing about atomic bombs. When they blow up, and they carry out, you know, they do fission and create heat and consume everything under it. They turn it into a fine radioactive ash. That radioactive ash is carried up into the stratosphere, into the prevailing mm -hmm. winds, and then blows in the direction of the prevailing winds. When this happened at Chernobyl, the prevailing winds were our east. They blew 90% of it back onto southern Russia, central and southern Russia. Anything he does in Ukraine. Well, I mean, we're not also we don't have a concentration of troops where an atomic bomb would be worth it. Right. All it would do is vaporize a section of Ukraine, cast Russia as an outlaw. NATO would immediately intervene. Just boom. No fly zone. Greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. We have to. Right. And then we would have to start talking about demilitarizing, you know, not demilitarizing, but at least, you know, uh, neutralizing Russia's nuclear power capability, whether that, you know, um, what, depending on what the target is. Our guess uh, by November, when I was, you know, I worked in Ukrainian intelligence very early on uh, in the war. But my guess was if they were going to do anything and make it look like we did it, which is Putin hints at that all the time. Ukraine mm -hmm. is going to detonate an atomic bomb. America is going to detonate an atomic bomb there, right? So they'll do a false flag. He could take a small yield atomic bomb, right? Five, 10 kilotons, or use a mechanical detonator on the thing, and then detonate it at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant complex at Inogadar. And that's 10 nuclear reactors. Of course, it was vaporize everything. 90% of the radiation would go under Russia. But he would have all the Cassius Belli that he would want, or at least make it up, to where 50% of this world and 30% of Republicans would believe that we, the United States, did it. Right? No matter what the who would, facts. Who would, I'm sorry. Who would believe that the United States did it? 30% of the electorate. 
all of the Trump voters, the you know, Correct. the larger the ultra magas will believe it. They will believe Absolutely. it. They believe it right now that we're planning to do these things. And Putin will come out and will say, I have to mobilize 10 million men. I have to walk over Ukraine. I have to nuke one or two other cities for this attack that was carried out. I don't know. That's the crazy Tom Clancy scenario that's in my head. I think we're going to get hit with chemical weapons as soon as the Russian army starts to appear to collapse. And I think they will collapse It's this year. Last year, I predicted they would lose all offensive combat power in September. And that came true. Now, the stuff that's happening now doesn't even categorize as an offensive. Right. Yeah, it's, so, tr it's uh, true. We shall see. Look, so, yeah, the New Yorker actually had a wonderful piece on exactly this, whereby uh, they say that Putin has made it clear that he's willing to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Now, such an attack would be the first battlefield use of atomic bombs since the United States detonated the two over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in mm -hmm. 1945. So in response to, of course, Putin's statements, the Biden administration, this is great, makes it clear that there will be substantial, albeit, of course, unknown, consequences for Russia if it uses nuclear weapons. Really? Okay, you know, that's, that's where, again, people start to lose some confidence in some of the statements that Biden is making. He's couching it. Of course, there's going to be substantial consequences. The guy just set off a fucking nuclear warhead. He just set off a nuclear bomb. So then last week, President Biden said that the world was closer to Armageddon than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 mm -hmm. years ago this month. This is a real this is a real problem. And then they go on to talk about that the author of the article, spoke with Anki Panda, who's over there, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And, you know, it was a very lengthy conversation. And basically what he turns around, and he says, is, you know, how rational Putin's behavior has been and why decades of nuclear peace may have given the world the false sense of security. And I thought that was by far the single most interesting line that we have there. Yeah, we've all been talking about this sort of nuclear de-escalation between mm. ourselves and Russia when, in fact, we've just been bullshitting ourselves, you know, uh, administration after administration. They have... 15, 1800 nuclear warheads. We have 3,200 or something like that. Any one of them ends up destroying the earth. So right. I'm not really 100% certain well, what we're doing to ourselves. Let me give you an idea of one of the consequences that I'm sure the Russians haven't factored in because they didn't factor it in at the beginning of the war. Okay, hypothetical, completely hypothetical. A we we have a nuclear detonation, a nuke debt, as we call it in the technical business, right? And it's real. Flashes off. Uh, by the way, when nuclear bombs go off, no matter how small a yield they are, they destroy all the electronics uh, in a given area. So all communications from Russia and most of what Eastern Ukraine will go down simultaneously, uh, which means they will lose it too. And throughout all of southern Russia, uh, their communications are trash. They're using our own. They're using captured Ukrainian mobile phones. But here's what will happen right after everybody figures out what happens. 
Every man in Ukraine goes to his kitchen. He takes out his kitchen knives. He goes to the closet and he takes his hunting shotgun. He gets some food. He gets in a car. He drives to whatever front there is. And you are going to see Cossack behavior from the Ukrainians. They will lose their minds. I have fought with them. I have been next to them. I just want you to picture for a moment the scene from the movie Last of the Mohicans where Mm -hmm. the British are withdrawing from the fort and the Indians attack savagely from all sides. That is the Russian army if they detonate a nuke. wherever You know, the line we have is a 1,000 kilometers, right? It's like 700 miles up front. They'll just go nuts. There won't be a Russian soldier that will survive that war. The Ukrainians won't care what losses they take. The Russians, by the way, won't be able to really use their equipment. They have virtually nothing left. Uh, of their army. And what you will have is the other million or two million men who are not involved in this war, who are of military age between the ages of 18 and 60. Ukraine hasn't fully mobilized at all. Those men will just get their guns, hunting knives, their, you know, territorial defense issue rifles, and they will just go on and they will find a gap in that line and they will just start killing Russians. And I mean, it will not be, it will be, the Russian army will cease to exist in a matter of days as an operational organization. Many of them will just get up and leave because you don't want to be around a nuclear detonation, right? It's radioactivity, radioactive material that will all be going east over your army and your reserve area and your major cities in the south. Putin would have to calculate that he would do that to claim that it's a Ukrainian bomb that we supposedly took in 1991 and America left them one and they decided to destroy their own power plants and that kind of craziness, the world will change. Yeah, it makes no difference. They can, listen, he could say whatever he wants. Nobody's buying his bullshit the same way no one's really buying Trump's bullshit, except those that are so, as you stated, ingrained into the cult of Donald Trump that right. he could say whatever he wants. But let me just move on for a second and say this. So worst case scenario that Putin wins in Ukraine and then just keeps going and picking up all the countries that Russia lost when the USSR was dissolved. I mean, (laughs) that sounds to me, I know it sounds crazy like a fucking movie, but that would most likely cause World War III. Is it your belief that in a war like that, it will come down to something as simple as democracy versus anti-democracy? Well, that battle is being waged right now in Ukraine. This is the eastern wall of democracy. But let me give you my opinion about that scenario. When Russians say this, right, we'll invade Poland, we'll do Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. You and what army? 80% of the Russian army was in Ukraine. 80% of their most advanced battle tanks, mechanized infantry vehicles, of their most combat-skilled commanders, Guys who had experience, let me tell you where they are now. They're dead. They're dead. They don't see, they cease to exist. The reason the Russians can't advance is because everyone who learned the lessons from early in the war are dead. It's an army of 175,000 Russians invaded Ukraine. One day or two days from uh, on the 24th of this month will be two, one year from that. 140,000 of them are dead. That's the Ukrainian count. And that's not a joke. And it's two to one casualties to wounded 
when you're talking about the Russians. I have seen Russians in piles, okay? They never evacuate their dead off the battlefield, all right? And the first thing I remember saying when I was like, I saw the first Russian that I saw dead, I was like, you shouldn't have gotten up this morning and faced off on us. This is well, you what know the what they you know what they do, Malcolm, and you probably saw it. They bring traveling crema, um, you know, crematoriums. crematoriums. Yeah, yeah, we've heard about. It. We've seen imagery of the traveling crematoriums, but the Russians don't clean up their dead off the battlefield, so it doesn't matter. And the few that they do get back there, they just burn them off, but so that they don't have to pay the families the sixty-eight thousand dollars that they promised them. There's a city in Dnipro. Um, they have a a I believe they have eight. 8,000 8, corpses in one morgue that they've been collecting since the beginning of the war. Uh, there's, you know, the Ukrainians treat them with respect. I've seen them treat their bodies with respect. They put them in body bags. They don't put them in a poncho. Uh, they collect their information. They report it to the International Committee of the Red Cross. All I'm saying is this. Russia ain't got nothing, nothing outside of Ukraine to attack anybody. In fact, and I wrote this in my my Substack, you know, how Biden humiliated Putin. I, they may not, at the end of this year, actually have enough physical, advanced armor and mechanized forces to defend their own borders from anybody. Manchuria, the Russians, nobody. You could get halfway through Siberia before Russian forces could be mustered to oppose you. If the Chinese just decided they're going to take all of Siberia from central Russia east, they could do it. And the only thing you know that where, could stop them is an atomic bomb. You know, Malcolm, you know where I think Russia, especially Vladimir Putin, is going to really see um, some serious headache? And that's mm -hmm. when the war starts coming to an end, God willing, soon. But the problem is these men don't come back. And the wives and the moms. You ever fight with a Russian mom? You ever turn around? I mean, especially if the child, you know, is young and not married and so on. You know what's going to happen? You're going to have all of these Russian moms angry like you've never seen anger before because they don't want their right. kids going in the first place but you have no choice when you live in an autocracy you're gonna have an internal fight going on between the moms and the wives and the sisters it's gonna be the women that are gonna ultimately string putin up by his feet and beat him literally beat him like a pinata because fucking russian women and i really mean it, russian women don't play you know, the in Argentina, when they had the dirty war, what brought the government down was not, you know, a bunch of widows, you know, going out and shouting at the president. It was the mothers of everyone who had been disappeared, who yep. every day walked around a plaza downtown in silence for a couple of years. And then hundreds and hundreds of other people's children who had been disappeared, had been taken on airplanes, thrown into the ocean, um, were starting to show up and then people were noticing this now imagine that with screaming russian babushkas yeah, times, times 130,000 right you know and it's, they all it's a problem. do the mother's march on moscow then you start beating them shooting them you'll have an internal uprising of the women yeah. i mean i yeah. for one look forward to that moment but look this number 140,000 dead russians that's not a joke 
It's not a joke. We have really killed that many Russians. Every time a tank blows up, that's three men turned into carbonized former human remains. And I've, yeah, I've been in those things. They, they are, by the way, that's it, ten, that's 10,000. That's 10,000 more than I paid Stormy, you know, not to talk about pulling Trump's mushroom pecker. So, you know, it's a large amount. All right. Uh, now, let me, <laughs> yeah, you think about that for a second, my friend. So let me ask you this then. You put right? that in my head. I can't believe you. <laughs> yeah, well, you have a nice dream tonight. So listen up. Hungary says that it's maintaining its ties with the Kremlin. Now, Hungary is basically an autocracy. But as people take sides between democracy and autocracy, I assume that Hungary won't have lots of friends in the EU. Because, I mean, it, it basically comes down, what, what it really comes down to is, do you think that Hungary will fight for or against Putin? Oh, well, first off, they're a member of NATO, so they're not fighting for nobody. The most that they could do is threaten their own way of life. Uh, the Hungarians have, have, since the fall of the Soviet Union, had a dramatic increase in the quality of life, uh, the gross domestic product, the gross personal income. Uh, there, they enjoy all the fruits of a modern Western nation. I've I've been there, love it. Uh, you know, uh, you know, love Budapest. Uh, but let me tell you something. This is all coming down to a man and his party. Yes, his party is one, but you have to remember in 2017, uh, no, actually 2016, the Austrian government, which was funded by Vladimir Putin's United Russia, they won power and they immediately start doing battle, by the way, with their intelligence community. Um, about six, to, I believe it was a year later, the intelligence community fought back and had a sting where the president of the country and his senior staff we're taking bribes in Ibiza, calculating their bribes, and it was all videotaped and audio recorded, and that government fell. Viktor Orban could wake up and find out that he is a, a victim of one, Vladimir Putin outing him as a lackey, and the rest of the Hungarian people want him out, uh, or that his own people have decided they've had enough and they don't want to risk you know, being a Russian vassal state. Well, let me ask you this, because obviously— one of the worst actors in this mm. entire U.S.-Russia debacle, and it is a debacle, is China. Because China's been saber-rattling and saying that they're ready to help. And they are actually helping Russia, as, of course, is North Korea. But what's the likelihood of that? What's the likelihood that China jumps in and really starts to help Russia? I say it's zero. And uh, it's, it's as simple as this. Um, because China has now I'm not saying China won't do things for Russia. And, you know, I would do things for Russia if I were in the position of China. I would sell them every cheap tchotchke, every cheap good, every cheap replacement part for their broken down Ladas and their Renaults that aren't working. Right. I would sell them three, one working model for every three broken piece of trash. And I would take their money at a 50% markup, right? The money that no one else in this world will touch. And I would exploit them to the point where they will become completely and wholly dependent on the People's Republic of China. That's what I would do if I was China. Russia has no market, no access to markets. Even though it's not hurting right now, it will hurt. The people it's really hurting 
are the trillionaires, right? The oligarchs, the guys who have who have essentially, you know, they got handed Russia for free and sold it out over the last 30 years. <laughs> Malcolm, I think you're referring to the guys that are flying out of windows, right, and who seem to be dying at for a big suicide rate. That's almost like 70% of all the oligarchs have committed suicide over the course of like the last, you know, year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at some point, and this was another substack that I wrote that we hadn't talked about. I wrote an article called How Putin Could Die. And it's not about Jason Bourne or the CIA or Zelensky killing him. It's about those oligarchs having enough economic pain to they make sure that he has a terminal change of command, right? That he is no longer, you know, they're losing money hand over fist. And as you say, they're taking long walks out of very short windows on very high elevations. All the time. There was an oligarch who had it himself, his wife, his daughter massacred in an apartment in Spain. Right. And these are all Russian state sponsored murders. Uh, They just had the head of a Western military district that they accused the commander of of um, of corruption. And this woman general just walked out a window last week. Right. 20th story building. That's Vladimir Putin's way of making sure that you behave. But oligarchs have money. And if they want to buy 500 AK-47s, right, and do a mass ambush of Vladimir Putin, they could. If they wanted to try to trap him in a nuclear bunker, they have the money to do it. The question is, what happens after Vladimir Putin is neutralized? I'll tell you what China would do. China will just wait there and sell everything via a long train train distribution route and create a Chinese Walmart in Russia. They're not going to get involved. They're going to take their money. Yeah. Well, look, I was <laughs> this is so crazy to me. You know, mm. as of uh last week, I think, they said that there were more than 30 Russian oligarchs. 30. Right? I mean, could we just start putting together the amount of money we're talking about? 30 Russian oligarchs have died in apparent suicides, uh accidents, all of whom, of course, are close allies of Vladimir Putin. I mean, we're talking about high-ranking officials, you know, you guys from Luke Oil, Novatech, Gazprom, all of these. I mean, this is really crazy, crazy stuff, whether they're jumping to their death or, as you said, you know, they had um, these mysterious car accidents. The whole thing is obviously truly crazy. But I think that even the oligarchs would have a very difficult time in terms of getting to Putin. And yeah, they could hire with their money 10,000 mercenaries, 10,000. Let's not forget, you're still fighting the Russian army. You know, Putin is no dummy. He's not Donald Trump. Let me be very clear. The Russian army that he still has. In 1917, the Russian army turned around and overthrew the government with the communists. You don't know who's organizing out there. And that's why I wrote this in that article that, you know, at some point they could buy the generals and those generals could be running the bases with their own atomic bombs. And Vladimir Putin might be stuck in an atomic, you know, bunker in Kursk trying to ride out and command the armed forces and end up eating a nuke. A small one, yeah. That comes or he, from could, or he could end up eating, or he could end up eating a bullet from one of the guys who paid a billion dollars in order to do it inside his, the bunker. You know, his closest, most trusted bodyguard. Uh, and I actually spell out other leaders who've been assassinated by their bodyguards. Indira Gandhi, sure. 
So, uh, but you know, one last thing. This reminds me, your comment about the oligarchs reminds me of an old Monty Python skit where the guy says, I'm looking for Mr. Jones. And he says, oh no, Mr. Jones is dead. He died by accident on fire while drinking poison from a heart attack while falling out of a window on top of an exploding car from a gunshot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. That's how, that's how yeah. every Russian oligarch will have to plan his future. But you know what? There could be a brighter future. Unfortunately, a Russian civil war is something that I personally would not like to ponder. It could be a civil war where they exchange nuclear weapons at each other. So then what does the world look like when the war is over in Ukraine? I mean, is it realistic to think that there's a peace plan that could ever work now after all of this? Well, no, I don't think there will be a peace plan. Um, you know, the, the Malcolm Nance proposal for Ukrainian peace was uh, we will accept negotiations with Russia for the unconditional surrender of the Russian army in Ukraine. We will allow them to take any vehicle that is not armed, turn around and cross back on their borders peacefully and bring your rifles because no one can arrest a hundred thousand Russians going back with their weapons. I would encourage the Second Russian Revolution. You know the you know the surrender. You know the turnaround of the Bolshevik army. Now that's not going to happen. What will likely happen is the Ukrainian army will break the Russian army within the next year to year and a half. When I say break it, I mean they will have no offensive or defensive capability to resist whatever the Ukrainians throw at them, and they will run. I've already now I've been in an army where I've made three armies run like that twice in Iraq uh, and another time in Libya. So where they just they just dissolve, they go away. Uh, I don't think the Russians are made of that. I, they're going to mobilize another 100. I'm sorry, 500,000 men. But they are going to have to come at us with sticks and Russian army helmets from World War Two. So what will the war look like after that? I suspect that by the end of this year, there will be a very robust NATO agreement that Ukraine will have very advanced Western fighters, F-16s, enough to where the way they're coming in by the hundreds in tanks, we have to secure Ukraine's airspace in such a way that uh, Russia will not be able to sit there and perpetually bombard Ukraine with artillery, which means enough weapons to make artillery pieces uh, disappear whenever they shoot. I think it'll be closer to, you might be in the old days uh, with um, Saddam Hussein, where we had the no-fly zone over Iraq. Mm -hmm. But every couple of days, an aircraft was shot at, right? And we dropped some bombs. Uh, I think it's going to come out to be something along that lines. Some of the eastern cities will be a little unlivable. I, I was in Kharkiv for over six months. Uh, we were bombarded three, four, five times a day. Uh, but it's a big city. People came home and, and moved back there. Uh, but... Crimea is the big is the big kahuna. Uh, yeah. Will Russia, you know, decide that they will nuke the city of Kherson if it appears that we uh, have the capability or the Russian army flees and abandons Crimea? I don't know that the, the dice are in the air on that one. Yeah. So tell me then the impromptu meeting in Munich between the United States and China. It yeah. obviously was a fucking blunder, right? It didn't solve any problems at all. But do you think that not only not solving problems, do you think that it made things worse? Also, 
What's your take on Secretary of State Blinken? Do you think he's good at his job? Do you think he's doing a good job? What's the deal with him? Well, you know, he is Secretary of State. Okay, that doesn't mean that he's doing a good job. (laughs) Well, there actually is a job role within that. He is not not just the representative of the United States in diplomacy. Okay, he is the mouthpiece of the President of the United States for the policy of American diplomacy as well. And he must be diplomatic. So the meeting and that that they had, I don't think that it did any harm. It also was an informal way for us to uh, do a uh, you know peacock walk around about what's mm-hmm. actually happened in Ukraine. The, the Chinese aren't stupid; they know what the mass you know that we have massacred the Russian army. When I say we, that's the royal we. Uh, the Ukrainians have massacred the Russian army there, and that it's a matter of time before Russia loses all of its combat capacity. China is not going to sell them weapons. Uh, so Blinken, for the most part, is why, why do you out. say that, Malcolm? Why do you say that? Oh, they don't have to. Because one, selling them weapons means that people stop buying iPhones. And there, you know, if it's a trade-off between a few hundred thousand cheap rockets to Russia and losing every iPhone factory in China and having it move to Mexico or Canada, the Chinese aren't going to you know, I believe now I have met some Chinese experts that say uh, the one guy described the, the, the Chinese Central Communist Party as a conglomeration of two wings, the merchant class and the criminal class, the, the, the thugs of the Chinese Communist Party that actually control the country. And he says you really can't predict them because sometimes the merchant class is worried about their money, but sometimes the thug class is worried about their, uh, you know, bravado and and looking like a a hard guy. I think right now the lesson for Taiwan from them is that they could be soundly defeated. Taiwan has a lot of these weapon systems, but I think they're going to bide their time. And if they're really smart, they would just take every spare ruble in Russia and every hidden dollar in Russia at 30 cents to the dollar and sell them cheap goods. So, you? so let's, the answer is yes, except yeah. when you don't have money, which yeah. is really Russia. I mean, yes, there's a concentration of wealth in a hundred in the hands of a hundred people. Now it's obviously much less, right? And getting fewer each and every That's day. 30. But the second <laughs> that they start sending machinery, ammunition, and so on that doesn't work, that's where that sort of gets shut off. My belief is that really what's Russia's what's Russia's money source? Mm-hmm. Oil. Right? Oil. It's mm-hmm. it's simple. We have in this country three and it's not just Russia that we have to be careful about. It's also in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, you have Iran, you have Venezuela, you have these oil producing countries. We have 360 billion with a B billion barrels of oil here in the United States. We have an oil reserve larger than Russia and, you know, and Saudi Arabia combined. Mm -hmm. I still to this day can't understand why we're not doing what we need to do. Extract the oil, flood the world fucking market. We have enough to flood the world market for 50 years. In 50 years, I don't suspect that we will be using fossil fuels for anything 
or almost anything, flood it, instead of it being $80 or $70 or $100 a barrel, it could be $15, whatever it costs to extract plus an extra dollar for the government. We could mm-hmm. wipe out our national debt. We stop all of this bullshit of you know Middle Eastern money, dark money mm-hmm. fucking up our elections. Russia now has nothing to sell except you know dirt, right? I mean, they have nothing to sell to the world. They have no money within which to keep fighting these wars. Why not just do it? Right. And we truly I mean, we have the but for some unknown reason, we just we just don't do it. And I'll never understand it. But I just well, want to stay with China. Go ahead. A- answer President that. The United States doesn't control the industry unless we are in a declared war that's been certified by Congress. I mean, Franklin Delano Roosevelt could have done it. Uh, you know, Harry Truman could have done it. Uh, because those were the parts that, you know, when the when a state of emergency and a declaration of war signed, the president has almost near dictatorial powers on the economy and on any other thing. He could order oil to shale up, you know, and uh, and, and do that thing. You know, it's not realistic so long as we have this free market economy. Oil, once it gets out into a pipeline or onto a ship or into a barrel, it has no flag. But I like your strategy of, you know, let's just break their monopoly. Right. I mean, to me, it seems like the right thing to do while electrifying the United States. Uh, Knock off our debt in one in one false swoop. Three hundred and sixty billion, even if it's ten bucks. Look what you just knocked off. Thirty six trillion dollars. China is obviously our greatest threat. And it's a great threat for one because they have so many people and they don't give a shit about their people that I mean, they can actually send into war. A billion people and not think twice about it. Whereas in this country, we need volunteers, right? Or we'll have to initiate, you know, the draft again. So frankly, I don't see also this generation, the Gen Zers, I don't see any of them wanting to go to war. It's not like it used to be, you know, where people would just, you know, initiate themselves and go down to your local recruiting over nationalism and patriotism i just don't see this generation as that sort of um belief system so what can we what can we do to prepare for war with china or anyone else for that matter if we actually just don't have the troops yeah i got some bad news for you um this statistic's true um Iraq, Afghanistan, and U.S. military operations for the last two generations, the Gen Y, Gen Z, have produced over a million soldiers who have done combat tours or tours in an overseas uh, combat in an overseas war environment. Gen Z is a, is up to age thirty now. You know, to you and me, they're all seven and eight. <laughs> in fact, you know <laughs> exactly. They're seven. You and know, eight you're right? old. My daughter's 30, and I cannot think of her past 12 years old. So, um, but yeah, they actually have stood up. And what I find more interesting, and I follow the the Twitter feed of Victor Xi, uh, Gen Z is completely changing the electorate. And, and, you know, they do not like Republicans. I mean, like 80 to one, right? Eight to eight to two. They do not like Republicans. They don't like these policies uh, and they are shifting elections dramatically. 
Uh, you know, yes, I elections, oh. yes, but I want to I want to stick to the point of them the wanting military? to pick themselves up, grab an AR-15, put on an ugly khaki outfit, and then go yeah. fight a war in a foreign land. Yeah, but they are. It's the the United States Armed Forces right now. All the I call them idiots. All the young soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, guardians, you know, and coasties who are between the ages of 18 and 25 now is the bulk of the United States armed forces. They're Gen Z. They pick right, it up. So you know what, Malcolm? Oh, we're having you know a retention what? problem, though. You know what I'm going to say to you then? I take that question back. All right. It's it was just a thought that I had. And you being the expert that uh, you right. are, I really just needed to get out. I thank them. I thank yes. I thank this generation. I thank anybody that's willing to put on the uniform and fight for this country. I, I truly do. And I have absolutely nothing but the utmost of respect. My belief is that, you know, that they're different. Yes, they will go out there, they will march, they will picket, they will scream, they will yell, they will organize, they will change the future electorate of this country. There's no doubt about that. But I just didn't see them as the, you know, hua uh, sort of group. But if I am wrong, I am. They're, they're you the have army. no idea how happy, <laughs> Malcolm. You have no idea how happy I am to hear my, to hear you tell me that I am wrong about this. Oh, and I take back the question. And anything and anybody that's listening to it that falls into that Gen Z, my apologies. You know, you are you are the future of this country. I got a little something I need to say to Gen Z though. Please re-enlist. Please stay in the armed forces. Retention is our biggest problem right now. When I came into the military in 1980, um, retention was our post-Vietnam War retention. Staying in the armed forces was the number one problem. We're having that again because the economy's awesome. Lowest job, you know, unemployment in the last 70 years or something along that line. These guys are getting out and opening up cafes. I don't want that. I want you to stay in the military and defend and bring those values. All these ridiculous people are like, the armed forces is woke. Let me explain something to you. The ass kicking we are levying on Russia using the Ukraine with the Ukrainian army, that's our tools in the hands of the Gen Zers. They could be like Terminators, all right? They would slaughter any opponent that came against us because they're think, they they can maneuver, they have the best weapons on the planet. The Ukrainians are kicking Russia's ass with a fraction of the weapons that we actually have. Gen yeah. Z are the people who are going to be using and are using those weapons now. If we have anybody that stands up to us, I regret that they ever, you know, ever decide to go up to us. So long as they're not wearing flip-flops. We can't beat guys in flip-flops, apparently. <laughs> well, there, there you go. So <laughs> let me ask you this then. How dangerous are the voices in Congress that are pro-Putin? I can't believe that I'm even asking this question, right? I mean, after making the mistake on the earlier question, now I'm going to come up with this one. And I can't believe I'm even actually asking, right? These voices, these pro-Putin voices in our Congress. I mean, we know who they are, right? Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, Biggs, Rand Paul, blah, 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 right? But do you think that they're being paid to be pro-Putin? Is there some dark money that's coming into them or whatnot? Are they just fucking fascists? Or, seriously, are they just plain fucking stupid? There has to be an answer, and I know you know it. 
the answer will always have the word fucking in it. All right. Uh, yes, they're fucking fascist and fucking stupid. Uh, let's be honest. Great. But more importantly, they are fucking Donald cultist. They are the cult of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has told them Pootie Poot is his favorite. Therefore, it's their favorite. These people don't think. They are speaking to the lowest common denominator. They are shouting at the guys who are, you know, you know, meal team six, the guys who are wearing camouflage that they got from the Walmart and, uh, you know, are 300 pounds overweight and are running around with AR-15s pretending that they're special forces. They are the people who think they own America. They don't want a diverse America. Uh, you know, people like you, Jewish they would rather see you dead. People like me, black, they would rather see me out of the country. They do not believe in American values. They believe in Donald Trump's white supremacist, you're an idiot values. So when you see the Marjorie Taylor Greens, you see the Lauren Boberts, they just understand who elected them. Let me tell you something. I was asked to run for New York 19 a couple of years ago. Well, this last year while I was in Ukraine. And uh, my district split, and it went from being 50-50 to overwhelmingly conservative. But they asked me, what would your platform be? And I said, oh, it's as simple as this. I would go up to the opponent, and I would say, do you stand with the Constitution of the United States? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm a patriot. I'm going to go, why do you stand with Donald Trump on this? Oh, Donald Trump, why do you stand with Donald Trump on that? And I would just say, you're a traitor. You're a traitor. You're a traitor. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm a purist in the defense of the beliefs of the American experiment. I am a believer in it, but anyone, and I would just ask him every every time he opens his mouth, do you support the January 6th uprising? Yes or no? And if he say waffles on it, I'll go, that's a yes, you're a traitor. And I would get that entire debate to be about, do you believe in America or are you a traitor? We don't do that, right? Democrats right. are nice. I used to be a conservative way back when. I was Colin Powell conservative. Now I'm called a flaming liberal because mm. strong on national defense, liberal on some social things. Doesn't matter. If you don't follow Donald Trump, you are a traitor. Uh, they kick, you know, um, you know, they kick anybody who doesn't follow Trump out. And there was just a recent New York Times article about the party of Reagan has ceased to exist. It is the party of Trump now. And you support him as a cultist, unwavering, whatever he says. If he says kill people, they'll do it, uh, you know. And so that being said, all I would do, and I don't understand why my Democratic colleagues in Congress don't say, I'm sorry, I'm not talking to you. You're a traitor. And they'll go, oh, well, I'm not a traitor. No, if 50, 100, 200 people say, sorry, you're shunned, you hate America. They say, well, it violates the speech and debate clauses. It violates the comedy of the House. Don't ever get me in that building. All right. I defended this nation with every moment of my life. I was born in a naval hospital. My family's been defending since 1864 nonstop. I will call you out every time I walk by you in the hallway. I will shame you. Well, and so you should do. And so you should be doing about that. That's We're right. So nice. Malcolm, look, you know, the hour goes by real fast. I have this one last question for you okay. that I just got to get in here. All right. Because things have changed a lot since you were on the show last summer. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you worried about then was that certain far right groups were gearing up for violent actions here in the United States. Yeah. But now, one year later, 
we're seeing things like the Proud Boys and other of these white supremacist groups have now turned on Trump. Do you think that things will calm down? And should we worry and continue to worry about violence if Trump is ultimately indicted, whether the indictment is here in New York, in Georgia, in D.C., or any of the other countless claims that are pending against him? Um, first off, I would say that the, the predictions that I made last summer when I was talking about my book, They Want to Kill Americans, uh, those still hold. Now, they are holding simply because since the turn of the election in November, they seem to think, and I say they, I'm talking about the Trump voters, the ultra MAGAs, they're on pause because they think they control the United States government now. Anything that impacts that fantasy that they have control of America is where they're going to start thinking about how many AR-15 bullets they have in there. By the way, bullet prices have gone down over the last year. Yeah, they're down from $1.25. They were up from a 31 cents to $1.25 by the summer of 2021. Give you an idea where their mindset was. They were buying every spare bullet in America. Now it's down to about 89 cents. You can get them as low as 60 cents per round for an AR-15 bullet. But they're still practicing. They're still preparing. They're still thinking about it. Yes, Proud Boys are going to get indicted. Yes, there's all sorts of, you know, in infighting that are going on with the Proud Boys demanding Donald Trump come and testify at their trials and say, you gave me orders. And Trump just throwing them under the bus and saying, no, Welcome. they don't care. The problem with ultra magas is part of this cultism is whoever has been thrown under the bus, Donald deserved to throw you under the bus. It, mm, it could be your me? mother. They don't care. What, you, what about me, Malcolm? <laughs> you're a turncoat rat bastard. There so you go. You might recall that. But you know what? You're a man of honor. And that is not allowed in the current ultra maga party. No, it is not. Malcolm, let me thank you as always for your insight. Um, for your patriotism, for everything across the board. Thank you so much, my friend. And I, you know I'm going to be calling you to come back. There's so much going on in Trump world. I'm home. I need, I need that expertise. All right, Mike. Thank you so much, my man. And now for today's mea culpa. Did you know that Samantha Markle's lawyers represented Donald Trump in the Clinton conspiracy lawsuit? No, neither did I. I didn't even know who Samantha Markle was until she started blabbing about her book. So I guess she hates her sister Megan. Who the fuck cares? I mean, it's bullshit. Nobody cares. It's all just grist for the mill. Stupid people saying stupid things to fill the hours in the day. But Samantha Markle is in the same camp as Trump, as Don Jr., Kimberly Gargoyle, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And for these assholes, the truth isn't the point. The attention and the grandstanding, that's the point. The look at me aspect of our current political climate is sort of entertaining the same way a car crash is. But it's all meant to just dumb us down, to numb us from the painful reality of what they are intending to do or what they have already done. When Marjorie Taylor Greene says that red and blue states should get a divorce, it's a distraction from away from Kevin McCarthy turning over all 44,000 hours of January 6th footage exclusively to fucker Carlson. 
So all this posing and screaming and yelling, the costumes, the whole shit, it's all part of the charade. They do not believe what they are saying, but they understand the power of their position and their proximity to the cameras. It all translates into free publicity and money in their fundraising coffers. Or like I said, it's a distraction from reality. The entire point of alternative facts is to distract us from the truth. When fact-checked, they will call the fact-checkers biased. That's what they do. When indicted, they will call the law unlawful. It's all classic mindfuck. And for MAGA Republicans, it's just gold. This freedom that they speak of is the freedom to say whatever the fuck they want with impunity. Weak minds are attracted to cults and political extremism because it doesn't take work to believe. It only is what you want to believe. It simply takes desire. And if that desire is met with fake news designed to satiate that desire, well, fuck it. It's a win-win. It's a rating boom. It's Tucker Fucker Carlson's wet dream. But we can't normalize the rants of cocaine bear Don Jr. I mean, we have to turn away from the Medusa-like makeup growing on Kimberly Gargoyle's face. Marge and Boebert and pathetic, fucking pathetic George Santos are not normal. And they are not telling the truth. They never tell the truth. They just fucking lie over and over and over again. So we must ignore them. And most of all, we have to turn away from Donald Trump. Now, look, folks, I know it's hard to do, but the more clicks and the more hits that we give them, the more distracted that we become and the more powerful that they grow. We have probably done this to ourselves by not investing enough in our public schools, but that's neither here nor there. When someone like Samantha Markle gets on The View to fucking whine about her sister, just turn it off. Turn them all off. If we don't feed them, what happens? They'll die, or they'll go back into their holes, or just fade off into the sunset like bad actors in D movies. Now I trust you to do the right thing, so just let them go and do me a favor. Don't look back. And as always, thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.